Good day everyone, you're listening to Time for Your Hobby, and this is episode 195. It's time to share my story. I'm your host Alex, and today I have the honor to have Ralph as my guest on the show. How are you doing today? Uh, wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure, and I'm so looking forward for us to talk about oh, so many questions that you hopefully have for me, <laughs> so really happy about that. Well, the pleasure is all mine, and Ralph was such a friendly person when we just started talking on social media. He says, hey, I have a story I want to share which is about storytelling. So I'm like, you know what? This is perfect. It's been a while since I've had anybody on for storytelling and I love different perspectives and I'm sure you guys will be very interested in this topic today. But I don't want to get ahead of myself because Ralph is going to be the one sharing all this story. But before we jump into your story, mind giving a brief definition. Well, yeah, let's call it a definition of who is Ralph. Oh, okay, that's always a good question. <laughs> so I hope we we have enough minutes for that. <laughs> so the, the thing is always, uh, sometimes people ask me, what's your hobby? And then they ask, what is your profession? And I end up always saying, you know what? It's actually one and the same. I had this interest for martial arts since the 1970s and always wished for making this my profession. So I eventually became a Kung Fu instructor, started to uh, found schools, first in East Germany, later in Canada. I uh, always had this interest in books. So when the opportunity came, I started to publish first magazines, couple of cookbooks on the side just for fun, books about Kung Fu, about fitness for Kung Fu, for self-defense. So I like writing it. I like publishing it. I typically do all the photos as well. Then came the next along, coupled with talking about uh, my stories, about my experiences, um, about martial arts came along in Canada and in the movie that this in itself is a fabulous story. So never having learned how to act, um, I became overnight an actor and was in the middle of a movie set. So that was wonderful. Um, and then I discovered that in the end, teaching Kung Fu, teaching self-defense, writing my books, uh, acting for a movie, doing my YouTube videos, that everything is combined by one thing that I teach uh, always via stories. I always have uh, somewhat, sometimes my Kung Fu students already say, oh my gosh, what story is coming next? Yet another story. Uh, but I think this is so uh, important, especially to transport things that happened, even historic events uh, to the next generation to talk about um, so many different uh, issues to, and to pack it into interesting stories so that the knowledge doesn't get lost. And hey, uh, who doesn't remember of us when we were really little, how we liked when uh, somebody read a bedtime story for us? How exciting was that? And so I pack just about everything into stories. And you know what? The beautiful thing about you sharing your story is just showing that there are multiple stories out in the world. It's not always about the stories of the victor. There are stories from people that you will learn things that might have you might have never heard of them before, but their story is being heard. And I guess a perfect example of this is Anne Frank. That's going way back to the Second World War in the sense that her story was shared her diary. And it just gives yeah. a perspective that if we have more people like yourself sharing their stories, we get to learn more about humanity and how civilization works. And basically, this is our way to share 
your story on this podcast. So <laughs> this is the audio sharing portion of your story. <laughs> but before we jump too deep into the story itself, you sound like you're a very accomplished person with a bunch of things you love to share. So do you have any social media links, websites, or projects you are, you are working on that you would love to share? Um, right now, I'm actually working on my second short stories book that is getting bigger by the week, sometimes by the day. Um, it, it This part started in 2014. We had just finished the filming for on the movie set. And the next day was going to the, the uh, we were going to the movie premiere. So evening before I was in the forest. And then I slipped and hurt myself so badly. It was almost the end. So body going into complete shock and having a muscle torn in my leg and uh, no ambulance inside would have taken way too long. I got over it, got next day to the movie premiere. And then within five days, I hammered out the first short stories book. Back then, it was a short one, but it was a collection of, for me, very important stories. And then over the years, I started uh, further working on this, especially the last couple of years. So that's one project, the second short stories book, where there's a lot about East Germany in there, growing up behind the Iron Curtain, how life was with the Berlin Wall, how uh, detailed um, stories happened as a political prisoner, how it was coming into the free world, uh, the first connections there, coming to Canada, um, visiting in the U.S. many cities, and there sometimes being looked at this strange bird. Uh, what background do you come from? So that's one thing. Uh, second project I'm working on is following up this sci-fi action indie movie we did in British Columbia. is now a short film here on the German side. And third big uh, project is a Wing Chun Kung Fu book about my, I'm not even sure how many years it is. It's way over 40 years. I started in 1977. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, quite a lot quite a lot of years uh, to do a book about my learning methods, my training methods and my teaching methods, all this might come as a real surprise, all packed into single stories, one after another, <laughs> what it means to defend yourself, what it means to really grow your self-esteem, to become or to develop a healthy self-confidence and uh, how people in a good martial arts school form friendships, uh, improve themselves every week. Um, I just talked today to a musician in Taiwan who wrote me a while ago about how the Kung Fu training back then helped him with his music career, actually, the creativity. And uh, yeah, those, those are a couple of projects. <laughs> those are wonderful projects. And do you have a website or uh, any social media links they can find these projects going? Um, yes, um, there are just too many. Uh, <laughs> um, you can find all of them under link tree and then Kung Fu Coach, K-U-N-G-F-U Coach, Kung Fu Coach, and all the links are combined there, especially some of the uh, 
uh, clips from the movie shoots, from my Kung Fu lessons, from seminars, uh, videotapes I found from 1994 and the first open house I did 1997 in Vancouver. Um, and um, everything is combined under the Linktree address and Kung Fu Coach. Perfect. I'll put that down below so people can go check that out and listen, watch, experience your whole life story. They will learn some stuff about you that you didn't even know. <laughs> um, yes, sometimes I surprise myself because I think then how can I make this story uh, without changing anything? Just a little bit more interesting, a little bit colorful, colorful related to current events. And it goes from one to the next to the next. So it's always quite exciting. And speaking about going to the next and the next, we're going to take a few steps back. What moment in your life did you say, hey, I want to start sharing my stories and you became a storyteller? This probably goes as far back as to the early school days. Uh, now, after a long time, having been back in Germany the last couple of years, I've revisited my schools, the neighborhood where I grew up, the first workplaces. And then I remembered, hey, wait a minute, even back then in high school, I wrote already um, the first reports um, about things that happened in my life and that I just liked uh, the, the, the moment when you sit with several people, talk about it, involve them, um, uh, see people laugh about it, uh, sometimes serious when, when it's a more difficult story and uh, how it stays with people. And then those past couple of years, you know it for yourself as a podcast host. Sometimes you sit over, if it's your business card or a short blurb on a website, how do you define yourself? So I always had there Kung Fu coach doing Wing Chun Kung Fu since 1949, martial arts since 1977 author, publisher, actor. Well, of course, when you're a one-man enterprise, you always do a little bit show-off stuff. And then I thought, hey, wait a minute, for everything, the first line is just my name and storyteller. That just happened the past one or two years. That's wonderful. And then I feel like the moment you got started, you just started steamrolling. You're like, you know what? I need to just keep doing it and sharing more and more and more. And the way that you have Kung Fu under your belt, no pun intended, and you have all <laughs> these other life experiences, there's multiple different ways people can tell stories. They could tell stories through audio. They could tell stories through books like you did. You can tell stories through presentation. So for you, what is your preferred method to share all these interesting stories? Now, since we are on a podcast, so a couple <laughs> of years ago, I was a radio junkie in the 70s. So I grew mm -hmm. up without a TV. Horrible. Yes, it did happen. No, it actually wasn't that bad. But um, uh, in the 80s, the first private radio station in West Germany uh, went on and we were on the east side in East Germany listening to that. And I always loved the radio jingles out of the old days, the uh, how somebody was Sunday evening telling a crime story and just with a few noises in the background could uh, have you almost glued to the speakers and that it's 
actually even more exciting as a uh, movie, as a TV show. And that was always with me. And it was actually 2018 and uh, 2017, um, expert in his field, um, Dr. Perry, he's a, a rehab doctor, fascia specialist, uh, also did fitness, has clients, uh, pain, uh, is actually called Stop Chasing Pain. Uh, he is lot, doing a lot um, for people's health. And as a Kung Fu instructor, when it's about the health uh, aspect, about injury recovery, I always read his things online. And suddenly I get an email and he, the doctor, uh, wrote, hey, coach, I've seen your Kung Fu videos and the movement. I really love it. Would you like to come on my podcast? First, I thought, wow, this guy is inviting me and he likes my videos. How cool is that? And then I thought I had heard it already very often. So what is a podcast? Is this modern radio? Um, so it happened, the very first podcast, and I actually like this medium because you um, have to think about how you transport the story. Since you don't have the visuals in a book, you have pictures, you can put diagrams in. If you tell stories in a Kung Fu class, then I use my hands and it gets all animated in videos anyway that you see all the movement and you can speak here you can only speak and you have to change your tone of voice you have to get to the point of the story as happened to me too um was a guest at the cold war history podcast and we were i think the first time where we're talking four hours or longer and sometimes you get into a story and you're in the middle of the story in the back of your head while you're still talking you think where the heck did I want to go with that? <laughs> <laughs> so that happens too. So this is what I find positively challenging about the medium of a podcast and really exciting because eventually you have to get to the point. Otherwise you lose the people who are listening to it. And so you mentioned for that first time you shared your story, it was around four hours or so. So it had me wondering, how has your storytelling ability changed over the years? I had to start categorize it i had to because i like to also not just tell the story but think about what do i want to achieve of it when i tell a story um, i want to transport a certain uh, information so with getting into podcasts being interviewed um, i went in my thoughts all the way back to i think that's 2006 Back then, for my daughter, I she wanted to have My Little Pony. So every parent with a daughter knows what this once meant or maybe again. And then I had never, ever used eBay before. I went to eBay, got a couple of My Little Ponies for her. And then I started to just look up stuff from East Germany. And to my surprise, I found so many items, if it's old newspapers, magazines, postcard, restaurant menus, tools, uh, autographed cards, uh, guides. And suddenly I thought, whoa, this is a good idea. If I collect pieces of my of the history, 
um, that I went through. Then maybe one day I will do a video podcast and limited to a certain time, tell my stories and then have the items to hold up to the camera, show and say this uh, I, today. Just for my own support, I put up here next to the uh, laptop my last self-defense magazine that I published, my first uh, short stories book. There's a piece of the Berlin Wall from the Checkpoint Charlie from 1989 here from the East German Secret Service, a choke chain for the prisoners, uh, autographed card of the last uh, chief of the East German International Espionage, a letter to me uh, back then when I was a political prisoner from the spy trader himself, uh, Dr. Vogel, who was also portrayed in the Tom Hanks movie Bridge of Spies, some East German money, my oh, mugshot from the East German Secret Service. So sometimes I have those things around me just to create the right vibe in order to get into the stories. And I know this might be a really tough question to answer, but with all these meaningful items in your collection, is there one that just speaks to you more, that you have a stronger bond with? Um, I think this changes from time to time. One important thing is here from the spy trader, this letter, it was one of those strange, weird uh, stories where you seem to have kind of an out-of-body e experience. Um, I was already being questioned by the Secret Service for a couple of months, sometimes day and night, the interrogations where one is the father type, the other one is the kind of same age, tough friend who says, hey, we got to go through it, you have to tell us everything. And the next one, kind of the office type with a old um with old glasses with an old frame who says oh i'm not sure what we're doing here i'm just trying to do my job not to get fired something and then one day i was by the guards from the pre-trial prison the east german secret service had in every one of their buildings in every major city they had their own pre-trial prison in there what most people didn't even know and I was brought into the interrogation office and there all the interrogators were standing and they threw this letter that I have lying next to me here onto the table, read and respond. <laughs> and then I just read on top of it, Professor Dr. Wolfgang Vogel also uh, admitted to the courts of West Berlin. And he said, we have received notice, we're taking over your case. And this was... I'm not sure how to describe it. There were two main lawyers in East Germany back then that did the majority of cases of political, political prisoners. And this was, I don't know, like this future golden ticket into the free world, into the, into the countries of democracy. And until this day, I do not know how he got my case. And there I had this letter in front of me, which meant at some point, it might still take a year or two, I will be freed and I will get into the free world. And there he wrote me, he's taking on my case, not to worry about anything, the costs will be taken over. And the interrogators looked at me with squinty eyes, angry. And then I was asked, how come that the professor doctor is taking over your case? 
And I was saying, uh, I'm in here. How the heck would I know? Isn't this your job to know how this happened? So they were actually quite angry because it meant you're kind of one step further, you're being paid attention to. He was the one, the lawyer, he was also an intimate friend of the communist leader of East Germany, but he was doing since the 60s already all this uh, spy exchanges, what the movie with Tom Hanks, Bridge of Spy is also about. So to this day, do you still not know how he found you? Um, no, oh, the, the, oh. there's so many crazy <laughs> stories around all of this, how I got arrested. Uh, when I came to the West, then my two meetings with doppelgangers and attempt of old secret service gang to finish my life when I got really sick, when I was poisoned, how I then basically had to flee to Canada to get to safety in the mid 90s, where Canada was really still, it was around the globe, it was a different world. It wasn't as global as it is today. Social media didn't exist yet. So it was quite different. So you're also mentioning, or we were talking about how stories, there's more and more stories coming out to learn more about the past. And sometimes you learn something new. Have you learned anything new that kind of not necessarily change your perspective on your story, but like, oh, that might explain why this happened or, oh, I thought something different. Has anything like that ever happened to you? Constantly, <laughs> constantly. <laughs> I had to think for a moment. So um, especially those past years now, so much has happened. Just to mention one example, coming back to Germany now recently, supporting my mom. She had a stroke last year and I'm the only one left in the family. The authorities here in Germany making it really, really difficult for me as a German citizen to be back in here. And a um, good friend of mine, she called a citizen office to get some information about the proceedings for me, getting new papers and everything. And that day, she, my friend, she just wanted to ask um, who would be responsible dealing with me. But accidentally, she said my whole name. So that was now the year 2019. And the lady on the other side said, did you just mean Ralf Hainer? And she said, uh, Yes. <laughs> and the lady at the citizen office said the one who in the up to the 80s lived here in East Germany in Rostock at the Baltic Sea, who did Kung Fu, who worked there and there. And my friend again, she said, uh, yes, <laughs> because you're always not quite sure where this is leading to. And then in a public office where there's several desks next to each other, where uh, customers come in all the time, they pull a number outside, get called to the next desk where all every stuff that uh, deals with what citizens do from new papers, changing address and so on. So this lady on the phone broke out into tears for probably 20 minutes nonstop. So the two, my friend and the other lady met up and um, it came out, she knew before the wall came down about something that could have helped me, could have warned me, but she was threatened by the secret service that they're taking her baby away. 
Her husband was threatened that they take his passport. He was uh, uh, going to see the ships into foreign country that was worth more than gold or anything in the East to have um, this ship passport to get into the world. So she basically told her she could have done something to help me, but she has been in counseling since the wall came down and she still feels guilty, would like to talk to me. Making long story short, I met several, met up several times with her in the office. We never got to talk, but I think she's punished enough by life, whatever they did to her back then. But every time when I met up with her, she was crying a little bit, big hugs. And I think this is all it should be. So there's still so many people who carry this burden from those old days of communist dictatorship. Um, it's, it's enormous. This was one of many stories that happened those last couple of years. Another one, I was invited by the BBC Russia. They did in 2019 a documentary for the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I just got written up on Facebook. You know, you open up your Facebook private messages and there was, my name is so-and-so, uh, I'm from Russia, but right now in London and I wanted to talk to you. And I thought first, oh yeah, okay, a Russian woman seeking, <laughs> <laughs> seeking man or so. But no, it turned out she was actually, she's a lovely lady. Um, she did, it does work for BBC Russia. Uh, lives and works in London and she was looking for different people. They wanted to do a documentary. So five different uh, life stories that had to do with the Berlin Wall. And then what was super nice, it came together. We did some filming and Q&A at the Berlin Wall, at Checkpoint Charlie, at the place in former East Berlin where I got my secret Kung Fu training in the 80s from instructors that came disguised as tourists from West Berlin. And we uh, did um, a, a, fil a shoot in the East German Museum that do exist now in different former East German cities. And uh, then we went to the big prison. There were several prisons back then in East Germany where political prisoners were put among the uh, regular population of real criminals in order to punish the political prisoners. And now I was there arriving at this prison that's now um, a museum for human rights, arriving there with a BBC crew and my daughter from Canada. And they filmed in one of my old cells, asked me questions there. And it was kind of a, yeah, very special experience and to share this with your own child being there seeing that was very exciting so that's another thing that just happened now um the very first time was 2018 that my daughter came to germany from canada and we went to the old interrogation jail of the secret service in my former hometown so there's now within the former block of the secret service there's now a supermarket in there where people sit down have a cup of coffee piece of cake so the, this alone is so strange 
But we went there to this building. It's just for most people, just a building. Many don't even know what was in there. And I stand out there with my daughter having to explain to her, oh, I'm so sorry. They're closed now. They're doing renovations. It will probably be closed for a year. So and then the man was standing there and obviously listening to me speaking in English to my daughter. And then he came and said, oh, I couldn't help but overhearing that you told your daughter about this pretrial prison. Um, we haven't been here in months. That's a pure coincidence that we're today here. I'm only here for five minutes taking something out. Um, but I'm the boss here. Would you like to show your daughter inside? I can open everything up and then oh. you can show her everything. And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of coincidence is that? Then we went into the former that's still um, basically preserved the way it was. It's the same smell. You could do this, bam, and you're right back in time. And you just want to look around. Oh, my gosh, how did I get out of this cell? Where's the next guard? Is it interrogation time? So now I had time there with my daughter to go through all the levels, show her uh, the different cells and so on. And then at one moment, um, she had disappeared and I just heard the scraping noise. I thought, oh, what's going on? <laughs> so I called her, Samantha, what are you doing? The uh, guy who had let us in wasn't inside. So we were truly alone in there. That's also a strange feeling. And then she came out of my very first cell and she said, I just scraped a little bit of paint from the door and put it in a little bag and said, I'm taking this to Canada as a memory of this. I thought, wow, okay, cool. <laughs> That's quite something. So that's yet another story. Just it just happened a couple uh, in the last couple of years, and that changes how you go on about those stories. Because when you can share them with family, when they can see where you were, and then you explain to them uh, the experiences, changes everything. Which reminds me, it was still the early 95 maybe or so 94 uh this building of course berlin wall was down for several years this building had been taken over by a company where all the interrogation rooms were so and one of the interrogation rooms i just stepped into and was from a phone company big meeting there they still had on the outside the bars on the window but if you're young, if you didn't have anything to do with the time period, it doesn't really mean anything to you. And then they just looked at me and said, okay, can we help you? I said, yeah, just, just give me a moment, please. I didn't really care. And they said, um, is there anything we can do? I said, yeah, just wanted to smell the room a little bit. So I got already the, the eyes kind of. Is this a weird person or what? <laughs> uh, I said I wanted to look one more time through those windows with the bars on. So in case you're not knowing, you're holding your meeting in a room where for decades political prisoners were interrogated day and night. And then it was quiet. And so I, I don't know. Sometimes it's also strange. You just want to see something like this, shock people a little bit. So I left there. And I hope that especially the young people then maybe inquired a little bit where they were holding their work meetings. Maybe there was a little bit of a push to learn something about German history. Uh, because so much 
disappears so quickly. It almost reminds me of a time, um, sorry to any American friends, but it did happen in the US. So I was in Seattle for a seminar and somebody for a Kung Fu seminar, end of the 90s. And somebody said, hey, your accent is kind of weird. And I said, what, is, what mean accent? <laughs> Never. <laughs> And um, they said, yeah, I grew up in East Germany. And then the person in disbelief, wow, so you grew up in Russia. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> I said, we were part of the Soviet bloc, the Eastern bloc, but Soviet Union is a little bit more than Russia back then. And this is thousands and thousands of miles away from East Germany. We were the spearhead, so against the Western world, East Germany next to West Germany facing each other, but I did not grow up in Russia. So that was also one of those key moments where I knew, man, I have to tell my stories. And even if it just helps young people to uh, learn more about it or to just Get the information wherever you find it. And I think it's our responsibility as humans to share our story. And it had me wonder as well. Now, we are simple humans. We always ask, what if in any kind of situation, what if I did this instead? So has that ever occurred to you when you're revisiting your stories in your head that you try to think of what if this happened instead? What would have been the outcome, even though it's impossible to change the outcomes because you are here because of what you chose or what didn't choose to do in the past? Those are your actions. And that's what brings you to be where you are today. But has it ever happened? You're like, what if I did this instead? All the time, all the time. There's always a what if not be because yeah as you just said um you cannot change your past but you still ask what if this would not have happened where would a yeah what would have happened what uh, would have been the next result um was for example this time when i came out uh, the prison 1989, the Berlin Wall had just come down. And naturally, within a day or so, I was in West in West Berlin first. And I had even left the few belongings that I had in East Berlin at my mom's place. And uh, today, many people say, oh, back then the Berlin Wall came, the Berlin Wall came down. Uh, who caused it? Yeah, it's everything from David Hasselhoff to something else. <laughs> so all ki kinds of ideas, even though it was actually the people of East Germany who did, who did, uh, made everything happen. So it wasn't all peaceful and nice, even a few days after the wall had come down, even though there were more and more openings in the wall, there was still a significant amount of people who were actually afraid that in a few days, all those holes will be closed and the wall will be pulled up double the height and safer than ever before. So uh, it isn't uh, that the wall came down and from then on, it was all peaceful and history had changed. So um, two days after I was in West Berlin, I had to go back to the East 
And I wish back then I would have taken photos or filmed something, but I did cross via the checkpoint Charlie back into East Berlin and went to my mom and she wanted to bring me back to the border point. And at the time, the very first breakthrough was done in East Berlin through the walls to get from a city train station in East Berlin to the uh, subway that was underneath East Berlin, going from one part of West Berlin to the other part of West Berlin. And there were still East German guards at the point, at the border point. So you were still checked. And for whatever reason, I had never been at the army, but I had my army passport when I was initially uh, had the medical checks and everything and had put it into the suitcase. And as you will have it, the guard said, open the suitcase. And this one fell out and he, oh my God, you can't just, it belongs to the government of the German Democratic Republic that is military uh, stuff and uh, top secret. And you can take this into the East and there, oh my gosh. If you've ever seen a parent uh, go crazy, my mom <laughs> lost it on this border guard. She was yelling at him. My son has just been released from prison where political prisoners were half tortured and their lives were destroyed by this country. And haven't you done enough terrible things? And maybe you were one of the guards that shot people or would have loved to shoot them if you don't let my son get through. And I will turn on to any media I can, I can find. And bum, 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 this <laughs> went on and on. I thought, holy crap. That's... <laughs> She's got your yeah, back. <laughs> something unloaded there and he confiscated, unfortunately, my army passport. It would have been a nice piece in my collection now, but he then pretty much instantly let me go. And my mom actually still um, didn't go to West Berlin. She still feared what would happen in case they close everything up again. They did it once when nobody in the world believed it in 1961. How can a country uh, divide a city? Now, just imagine this is as if you step on the street in your street and overnight now on the weekend to tomorrow, you wake up and there's a fence in the middle and you cannot go to friends or neighbors across the street and people will yell at you and say, we'll shoot you if you try to cross the street. So it's impossible to imagine today. But as always in history, things that happen once can and unfortunately often will happen again. And that's why it's so important to speak it out, to let people know the stories about that. And within these stories, there's usually a message behind it. So for you, what is the message you're trying to convey with your stories? Um, we always think about our breaking points. We always think about our comfort zone. We don't typically like to expose ourselves to danger and I still remember when I was interrogated the very first day in August of 1988, 
that I was thinking the whole time, okay, I've got to get going. I've got stuff to do, I have things to pick up, people to meet. I have to get to work. And they were even telling me, yeah, that's all right. We'll bring you back to work later until they told me, no, it's decided you're here to stay. And then the first guy who said, well, it's August. If you don't want to talk to us in September, I'm on vacation. Then there's October. There might be other cases going on. Maybe I'll get you out of your cell before Christmas again. Maybe not. The idea behind it that when you think every normal person would have to go crazy, that you can and simply have to last so much longer. There's so many among us that have all kinds of horrible experiences in life. And is the strange thing is if you share tough stories that others suddenly say, you know what? Yeah, I meant for years to talk about something. I just haven't found the guts yet to share my story, but I know I need to get it out. Otherwise it's driving you crazy. So I think a big part is in telling our stories that we don't just, it's not necessarily teaching others, but that we also help others who still suffer from trauma, who suffer from bad experiences to help them share their stories or for them to say, uh, it might be so hard, so difficult, but talk to the first person, make a start, do something. If you have any thoughts, this can be anything from self-harm to I cannot deal with this. How many people are, without going further into that topic, how many people are affected the last two years? And so it's good to speak out. This is something I would always want to send out, want to share. That's always what I would love to give others. Speak out, talk to somebody, share your story. No story is ever too little, too non-important to others. It's so great because there's a lot of people out there who are good listeners and you have so many with your podcast for good stories, bad stories, serious stories, historical stories, whatever it is, hobbies of any kind. Um, it's good for people to connect. And I think this is the main message there. Speak out, connect, share. Yeah, that's how I would put it. And you know what? It's very important to share because some people feel like they're alone in the world and it's only happening to them. But the more you share, the more you get to connect with people and feel like, okay, I'm not the only one going through this and I can relate with other people. And like you said, it will help people in the long run by just sharing our stories. That's why we have Alcohol Anonymous, people going through PTSD, yes. they're sharing their stories just to make sure they're like, hey, we have a community, we have people here who somewhat understand what I'm going through. So I don't have to go through it by myself. Yeah. Uh, so immensely important to uh, open up channels. Sometimes I think it doesn't matter what kind of story one is telling, if it opens up the possibility for somebody. I've even had it that people said, do you think what you have? I said, yes. I said, do you think you have some time? Could I talk to you? 
that's the first thing one has to do. Can I talk to you? And then hopefully there will be enough listeners who have an open ear. And uh, yeah, this is how we help each other. It uh, reminds me of another dark story. The first years I always thought uh, I can't share it because when I thought of it, people who knew that particular story that I'm about to share, uh, people didn't know how to talk to me. So I was the one who had to go to other people. Uh, was in 1998. Uh, my first son was about to be born, uh, but there were lots of complications. Then uh, it didn't quite work out. He lived only for seven days until I was holding him, was listening to his last breath. And first, what happens, uh, number one, you see there, BC Children's Hospital, you see um, the station where the babies are that usually other people never get to see and you see how much suffering is out there, then you get out into re back into real life and you try somewhat to cope uh, with this. Friends, acquaintances, you notice they don't know how to talk to you. That's understandable on the other hand. So I had to go to them, make them feel comfortable, um, talk to them. And actually, then you go to a restaurant, what happens next to you on the next table, there's a young couple with a newborn baby that's crying. It happened everywhere that you think really uh, that has to happen now every single moment. Later, I was telling the story um, at times and then people started to open up. Then people said, you know what? We lost uh, a child or we had several miscarriages and can talk about it. So this too, if it helps others, it helps you as well. Because by talking about it, you start to, yeah, well, it's, it's almost as if you share your thoughts that you don't want to admit for the first time with yourself. You know what? We're slowly getting better at this i feel like we're we're a society that throughout the past whenever you had a problem you had to keep that to yourself and now we're starting to open up to that so we hear more about people who are being sexually assaulted people who are facing discrimination and other stuff like that but in the past you had to apparently keep that for yourself because that's something you should be ashamed about to talk about you had a miscarriage you cannot talk about that back then but now you hear more and realize oh it's a very common thing for because my wife went through a few miscarriages as well and it was something that we like realized okay we have to share this because we're not the only ones who's going through this so it's very understandable yeah you notice that uh, for a lot of people it's also difficult to even begin to form a sentence, um, huge, huge company. I did a lunch break seminar for them, self-defense as a tool to deal with office uh, mobbing. So a lot of people have problems in huge offices that this person is talking that about me and I didn't get the raise that I should deserve. This person got this promotion over me. And so I was actually showing them basic exercises that they had to do with each other, but I encouraged them also to use their words 
um, said, so this is not just a punch coming to you. This is a co-worker who may or may not have spoken badly about you. Uh, you were told that he or she did. Now defend yourself. Go forward, control this punch, but also speak out. Um, I don't want to hear this again, that you're talking about uh, myself. This is not a nice thing to do. And so it went on and on. And you could see how with some people, the emotions were just breaking out. There was a lot of mini volcanoes there. And some were like a fighter when you did your knockout and you walked the ring and you're still fully pumped and can't quite calm down yet. So some people then came to me and said, oh, I think I'm ready to take this on. Um, I never had a chance to speak out. I never had a chance to address my problems. And speaking it out, this is this burst of freedom you never know if for everyone it is going to be possible, but just to put the seed out there, you can, you should speak up or look for a person who might help you with it. So Kung Fu self-defense is for me, especially something not purely physical, but also something that has to do with emotions, with our ability to even start or carry a conversation. And well, you know it best. Uh, when do men talk about emotions? Uh, that's like you said, it's one thing. Come on, you're a dude. You don't talk about something like this. You got to be tough. No, you have to speak uh, out about it. I had another Kung Fu student uh, many years ago, a nice guy working in a medical lab facility but it was very difficult for him to, to, he was really so shy to speak um, anything. So I said, okay, you're here for a private lesson. Let's not do any Kung Fu exercises today. I will be your interviewer. And then I said, okay, tell me uh, what, uh, why I should give you this job. Uh, what have you done in your last job? What are your accomplishments? And I was really accompanying this with noises and with, come on, bam, 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 answer me <laughs> right now. And oh, he got worked up and same as in a physical training, now that we were just, I'm making the <laughs> quotes here, just talking. And we did this for several weeks. And then he was really built up. It's kind of uh, how you build up a fighter to the event when it's going to happen, when you meet the other champ. And he went in there and it was a lot of other people had applied for this position. And then he came to me and was smiling from one side of the face to the other. He had gotten the job. They told him, we rarely have in this field where people work in a lab, somebody who can speak out, who can actually say, I would like uh, this to be my pay grade. Uh, those were my accomplishments. This is what I will bring to the team. You're so well-spoken, you get the job. And he was almost laughing about it. He was saying, they told me I'm well-spoken. I said, yes, now you are. 
anything can be learned. And there's physical self-defense, emotional self-defense. And even if you want that job and you have to present yourself, even your presentation, you defend yourself against somebody who with their questions is kind of attacking you and wants to bring you out of your routine, wants to get you a little bit shaken up. And if you can stand uh, for in for yourself and uh, articulate your thoughts, what you bring to the table, amazing, good for you. And you know what? Some of these people who try to put up this tough front and when you try to talk to them, they're all bark, no bite in a sense that they make, they may seem like, oh my goodness, they're so tough. I don't want to talk to them. But then in reality, if you stand confident, they're not as tough as you thought they were. Yes. Yes. And there are many more moments like this. And at the end of the day, um, uh, yeah, it comes down to that. And that's why communication, telling stories, sharing stories, listening to stories, using stories as a support for what you do in your everyday life is uh, so important. And uh, basically, that's uh, yeah, an engine for so many things. Uh, we have it today in social media. Uh, we can put ourselves out there more than at any time in human history before. And this has good sides, but also very bad sides. You have then sometimes people who, for whatever reason, need to publicly... Uh, uh, throw something at you, start arguments, and it's uh, quite difficult in this world of social media, especially for young people to stand up to that. So there's yet another facet of it, yeah. Well, hopefully if there's a young person listening to this episode, they are listening to what you are saying and building their confidence to do what they need to do in life. And yeah, nowadays we can share stories everywhere and anywhere at any time of the day so it's uh it's important to know how much of the story you want to consume how much you want to give out and just know your limits that is the important things and know, if when i speak about knowing your limits i mean knowing your limits and how you can either push or hold back just figure out what works best for you in the weird segue of me using the word best uh, yeah this is all planned what would you say is the best part about storytelling for you on a personal and an emotional level it is so exciting thinking about it um it started early 2011 a student of mine, he's an actor, uh, does also a lot of extra work where you're, I don't know, pedestrian number 54 crossing the street and then in the movie theater, you say, there I was for half a second. He was trying to apply, but uh, it's, of course, very difficult in Vancouver, Hollywood of the North. There are just as many unemployed actors as there are in Los Angeles, where every bellboy, every waiter, every uh, lady at the bar, everybody has their high glossy photos and their resume there to be handed out. So what he did, he had written a couple of scripts. Um, friend of him, uh, he's a cameraman, did the education for it. And so they started a YouTube series. So he just came to me to Vancouver for private lesson and I didn't even know much about it. 
And then family came to me and said, hey, Anselm has asked us, would you be willing to do one fight scene in their YouTube uh, show? And I said, of course. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. Um, then I talked to him and said, so how come? Um, he said, you know what? I'm working with so many actors And if they are not martial artists at this time, at the same time, some of them are unfortunately horrible in front of the camera. I said, yeah, I would like to do this. So I had no idea about acting, what you do. Of course, since then, I look at every movie and see how big names do their scene. I've heard all the different stories. So I got there. And camera was already standing. Okay, we do this in this scene. This is your text here. I even had a few German lines that helped in the beginning, not to be too nervous. And I said, so, and we go from here. Oh yeah, camera's ready, rolling whenever you are ready. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah okay. <laughs> serious now. And then we started to do this. And then I got this feel, storytelling, because even if, You're just doing the lines uh, by having to express yourself. And the few, first few shots, they were probably so odd. I'm not even sure if I want to see this. Okay, maybe today I got into it. What happened then is that they said, okay, just a, a YouTube series is not enough. We're making a whole movie, an indie movie out of it. Sci-fi, action, kung fu, secret service stuff. And then they started to write my role into it. Um, this might come again as a complete surprise to you. I had to play an East German Secret Service general, former, who had, after the Berlin Wall came down, had stolen lots of gold millions from East Germany, went to America, started a factory of super soldiers, and they have chips being able to go back in time, deal with things. And then between the main character, Anselm, the super soldier, and me, the general, uh, the, all those confrontations start. So when you think about, if somebody would ask you, Alex, which moment in life is the one that still lets you shudder, that fills you with excitement, that your palms get wet, you're kind of shaking <laughs> a little bit. Some people say, oh, I don't, I never had moments like this, but some of us do. For me, the first moment where this happened was the very first time um, I had come out of prison. I was in East Berlin and there's a border crossing that's called Palace of Tears, where over the decades in the evening, just before midnight, relatives, friends, had to go back to West Germany and had to leave their relatives, friends, and so on, uh, back in East Berlin in the dark, so to say. So ergo the name, Palace of Tears, lots of tears. Now I stood for the first time there shaking. So I'm going through border control, get then on the other side, and then I will get to the West, to the free world, It's, it's very difficult today to find an equivalent. This is as if you get up tomorrow morning, Alex, and there's an email in there 
from Elon Musk, and he's inviting you to the next to the next space flight. <laughs> and you what? First podcaster in space. You're doing a podcast open uh, up there with him yeah. uh, talking about how it feels when you leave the stratosphere and the feeling of weightlessness and you, yeah, okay, that's something I could do. Yeah. yeah why, why not? Yeah. <laughs> so this is how I felt back then crossing the border. Uh, through the tunnels, past all the guards, because everything was still functioning. Then I went into the city train, the S-Bahn in Berlin, and then it started to go. Watchtowers, barbed wire, uh, guards still standing there. And then the train was going. So I thought, okay, are we still in the east? Are we already in the west? And then I, I was almost with my fingers on the window of the door in this train. The train was full and I was looking out. I was almost panting, really nervous, heart was pounding. And then I looked on the street and I said, okay, there are no cardboard cars anymore. The, the famous, infamous Trabant from East Germany made out of cardboard. There are no Polish or Russian cars. They're all They're all real metal cars. There's Volkswagen, Mercedes, and all of this. It looks like I'm in the West. And then the first station came, and I knew the name. And you stay there. You stand there. I'm in the West. I'm in the West. I'm in a free world. Oh, my God. I'm there. It's it's so hard to describe. And typically, that's something you rarely ever repeat in life. But I was lucky enough. I had it the second time when I started to stand in front of a camera telling my stories, even if they're the lines of that movie in front of the camera, this is, yeah, there I'm a junkie for that. <laughs> Every time when I walked in Vancouver past the film set, my breathing goes up. <gasps> <laughs> when I see cameras or big uh, lights for a set, This is such an amazing feeling. And then going back to this one story, where, what I told you, the, the evening before the movie premiere, where I hurt myself so badly that I almost died out there in this forest on Vancouver Island, yet the next day pumped full of ibuprofen. I have no idea anymore how many and having my leg all uh, wrapped up uh, with bandages and so. And I sat there in a the movie theater. And when you, for the first time, see your own name there on the big screen, you almost slide down in a chair and you say, yeah, baby, <laughs> <laughs> that is it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then, then it was so nice. Afterwards, there were lots of friends from the neighborhood, uh, parents of the playmates of my kids, Kung Fu students, of course. I had in one scene alone, I had cast some 14 or 15 students of my Wing Chun school who were in those scenes. They played bad um, CIA agents that I all had to beat up or kill in one go. So... As the super general, they were all there with girlfriends, wives, uh, and so on. And then to be there on the red carpet and have photos taken uh, with our lovely photographer, Francine. She was happy. She's all, uh, also a student in our school. And this feels so amazing. So this is for me 
this feeling of excitement when you share stories. It's a wonderful, well, I say it's a wonderful experience, but it is an experience in building who you are. And it may, I feel like you have many more experiences coming your way that will just add on to your storytelling ability <laughs> and your stories. And you're, you're excited for the future things that are going to happen. You're like, yes, this is going to, I'm going to collect all these things that's going to make my story even greater. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Just, just the other day we were talking about social, social media, being able to bring any message out of there. I think you do it just like me. You have so many posts out there about your podcast and I always love to see that. And that made me think about something I found again last year. So in East Germany, rarely anyone had telephones. Um, so if you actually met again two students, two friends, just day before yesterday, we hadn't seen each other since 1994. We were together, trained together before the wall came down in the 1980s. We met again after the wall was down in the early 90s, went together to Denmark and so on for Kung Fu seminars. And we, we met now. And uh, one of them, Alfred, he collected everything back then. So if you wanted to invite somebody back then, you had to send a postcard <laughs> yep. where you say, hey, <laughs> how about this date and this time? Then he wrote me back a postcard, say, yeah, sure, that's great. So now two weeks had gone by. Then in order to make sure we he knows where we're meeting, I had to send him a telegram. Who knows today what a telegram is? Mm. And by that, I do not mean that channel, your app <laughs> that many people have on their cell phone. No, I mean a good old-fashioned telegram where you go to the post office, stand in line, then have them write down a piece of paper, your message, and they say, oh, that's now over 20 words. That's getting really expensive. Are you sure you want to say that much? <laughs> and then send it. And then in this other city, somebody on a bicycle um, writes up to the other person and brings the telegram. So my friend here, Alfred, he has kept the old postcard, the telegram just prior to us talking here today, he sent me the picture files of it. So that's so amazing to see that. And what I found last year, in 1980, I had applied for a telephone at home. So today one would say, yeah, okay, big, big deal. Next week, uh, in 1988, eight years later, came a letter from the phone company, so from the main postal office, Oh, yeah, dear Mr. Hainel. So unfortunately, at the current time, we cannot yet consider your application to receive your own phone at home. Eight years later. So um, I got this letter a couple of years later because it arrived after I had been picked up by the Secret Service and was already in interrogated and not a free person anymore. So when I got to West Germany, Two years later, I went uh, when I got my very first apartment, very small one, but hey, apartment in the Western world with running hot water and everything and central heating. This alone was cool. So I went to the phone company there. Many people say, yeah, the days of that service, they're also over today. But at the time, uh, early 1990, I went to the office 
and said, sir, I would like at this, in this address. So that was in West Germany. East Germany was still long, uh, a long time away from catching up with the technical standards. I would like, uh, I was there on a Friday. I would like a telephone. He said, oh, uh, mm, it's going to be difficult. It's the weekend now. And I thought, oh, not again. <laughs> what are they going to tell me now? Will take a year, six months or what, or eight years. And I had just seen this letter from two years earlier in East Germany. And he said, we're so sorry. We Today is Friday. We cannot make it on Monday. Would be Tuesday fine. I said, oh, yes. Please, <laughs> by any means, come. And she said, um, do you want us to come uh, until noon or afternoon? said, I don't really care. I will wait <laughs> all day if that is what it takes. And then I had my first phone, basically one, two, three, four days later, <laughs> after the first time around waiting eight years and still not having one. And... Uh, just having arrived in the West with one suitcase, I didn't really have much, but um, I went to an electronics store and they had on sale a used answering machine. So even that today, people, what the heck is an answering machine? Uh, with a little tape in there, I had to have it. I thought, okay, I'd rather not eat for a couple of days. Uh, I have to have an answering machine. I have to get with the times. This is so cool. So I picked it up, made my speech on it, had to listen to it several times. And I thought, okay, now I have a telephone at home with my own number and an answering machine. So I uh, called my mom in East Berlin, where still at the time, early 1990, when I called from West Germany, East Berlin, he dialed the number for a couple of seconds, there was nothing like your 10 seconds uh, at the beginning of this podcast. Then suddenly it made a loud click, then a little bit rattle, rattle, rattle. And then suddenly this uh, signal came through that the, the number um, is ready. And then my mom picked up and then usually we started with, okay, uh, hello to you and to everybody else who is listening in. So we hope everybody is going to have a great day today. Because at this time, early 1990, the East German Secret Service was still listening in on just about all phone calls. And I gave her my number. And then next day she called back. If you have never in your life experienced an answering machine. So I, I came back later this day, listened into the message. And that was, um, I just heard your voice, but I guess it's pre-recorded. Hello? Are you there? <laughs> okay. I think it was a recording. Does this mean when I'm talking now that it's being recorded on your <laughs> side? I guess I will just, that's so cute. That was so nice. Who can today relate to how difficult communication was once? It reminds me of uh, whenever your friends do one of those answering machines, like, hey, how you doing? And then you start talking. It's, yeah, I'm not actually here. Leave a message. So they trick you. <laughs> just reminds exactly. me of that. <laughs> And so for you, what would you say was your biggest challenge when you first started storytelling? To not keep rambling on and on, to not go from the first to the six, seven, eight, ninth story to the 12th <laughs> to the 13th, 
to breathe in between and to somewhat organize the stories. Today too, sometimes you organize and as you said, you have some questions written down, but sometimes it takes a different turn. Oh, I should send you later my bullet point list what I have planned for today. <laughs> I think so far um, I worked um, two of those points. <laughs> um, that's the fun of it when you get used to, never used to, it's always exciting when you tell more of your stories. I sometimes customize it also for the audience in person. I like to be extremely animated. So every, just about every part of my body is talking to pick a few stories. And what I absolutely love I mentioned earlier two, three, four examples that just the last few years, I found out more points of my stories, especially this whole East German political prisoner thing that have happened to uh, connect those stories so that something at the end comes out of it for the other side, that there's a takeaway. Um, that's for me the most important. And uh, just for myself, that this is what I can be happy about. Uh, I'm, I'm, I was smiling right now when I thought about it, is that I still immensely enjoy it. That this is fun telling stories. Yeah, if it wasn't fun, you wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like your hobby of telling stories, you don't enjoy doing that. That'd be not a really very fun hobby. So you're saying that this was a challenge for you, trying to stay more concise on telling your story when you first started. And it is kind of the same thing a little bit now, but what would you say is your biggest challenge nowadays? Uh, probably to keep the numbers down because the same story, it's, it's almost like in Kung Fu, life, Kung Fu, storytelling, one and the same. Uh, the other day, because of the still current situation, I am teaching a little bit via Zoom, uh, Wing Chun Qigong, where people had never anything to do with Kung Fu, do health exercises, breathing exercises. There's also some uh, former students from Vancouver, from Calgary, in there, somebody from Australia, a couple from Germany, um, to uh, keep this uh, going. How, how to put it? It is not just for me exciting, but also how to transport the motivation behind it and that teaching Kung Fu life itself and storytelling is uh, something that animates other people. For example, in the exercises, in taking in the information, in communicating with others uh, to be more open, to gain their confidence, to... Um, I, I do a lot of times follow-ups that I say, hey, uh, tell me what you thought about the session today, about 
the Kung Fu session when the evening we talked and then the feedback I'm getting, the questions, this is for me even more exciting and helps me to develop the stories even further and put in aspects. I always like to tailor it also. Um, I had it in Kung Fu lessons that the car mechanic, even though, if you believe it or not, I've never really driven car in my life, never had a driver's license. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> but with a car fanatic, I'm using analogies of cars and driving and high speed and this and that, shifting gears. And they say, wow, wow, that makes really sense. And I think, really? In my head, <laughs> me as a non-driver could do this? Oh, cool. So I tailor my stories too, so that people feel spoken to and concerns addressed in their specific profession, in their hobby and an end. Did, did I get around now to answering your question yes, or was this yes, one of did. those times <laughs> no, 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 you when me. I was talking and no, thinking, no, no. <laughs> what did Alex ask me? <laughs> Dora, I'll go through the same thing, but it actually led me to ask another question because you said you tailor your, your stories for the people you talk to. And now it might be hard to answer this one, but who are the people who ask the most interesting questions, because I feel like if you were to tell these stories to kids, they will ask the questions because kids do not care about being modest. They will be blunt. They will ask questions that are deep and just go for it. Have you ever had a child, let's say, ask a really interesting question and you said, huh, how do I answer this? <laughs> oh, I, I'm really glad you're asking this. That, that is so fitting because um, I think it also happened in 2019, I got a request from a teacher uh, because of that year, 2019 anniversary of the Berlin Wall, the coming down 30 years. He was for his uh, elementary class, he wanted to do a Berlin Wall week. They actually had out of cloth and drawings of barbed wire had built up a wall in their class. One half of the classmates were East Germans, the other half were West Berliners, and uh, they were given certain questions that he had preset, but he asked me, hey, would you be available for a Skype interview that my students can come up and ask you questions? I said, oh, never done this, but I really <laughs> would love to have that experience. And exactly what you were saying now did happen. Those were such wonderful students. I think it was in South Wales in the UK. And they came up and said, for example, one girl was asking, when you were there a political prisoner, so weren't you in fear of night? Did you have any bad dreams? How did you deal with that? I thought, oh, wow, oh. <laughs> that's a very interesting question. A child asking, did you have nightmares while you were away from home and couldn't get home? And so I was answering her question. I said, yeah, uh, the nightmares, yeah, they last a long time and they're still there today at times. And then I was thinking of it and I said, but uh, there's to every story, regardless how bad it may sound, there's always a positive twist. And to that story as well, I told her, you know what, because I had so many nights there where I had a really hard time sleeping. And also because of how the East German Secret Service was operating when you were sleeping, every 10 minutes the night was turned on as a so-called suicide watch. 
Now imagine not just one night, not just a week, but for months, every 10 minutes, somebody turns in your bedroom, bright lights on. What do you think? How would you feel after just a few nights? Uh, so I told her what I had done and it's absolutely, it's absolutely true story. I had started when you have to wake up and try to go back to sleep so many times I had tried in my sleep to become aware when I'm dreaming so that I can enjoy it. And it actually has happened. And then she said, what did you do in your dreams? I said, okay, in one dream, I was in a train and I was looking out into a beautiful valley, summertime, birds in the air, green grass. And I was thinking, how cool is that, that my brain is producing a whole landscape that's spring mood that I could smell in my uh, dream, the spring air. And I said, and that's not even all. I told her, I looked around in the train and looked at all the people. I did not know anyone in there. I said, how cool is that, that the brain creates characters in your dream that you don't even know? How does this work? I said, so there's lots for you guys to learn about how the human brain works. Maybe we'll have classes about this or ask this question one day when you remember my story. I said, this was my positive takeaway to try it. It's almost like in the, this one show, I think it's Star Trek Next Generation, when they become aware when they dream and that the aliens mess with them in their dreams. And that's almost how I felt there. <laughs> the kids being the aliens, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I could tell a story that uh, can potentially be very scary and it was already, it was a bad, bad experience, but that truly with just about everything, if you just look hard enough, there is a positive twist to it. There's something good that comes out of it because you can change it anyway. And this is for me also so exciting to sometimes, so like today, when I did so many bullet points for you here, <laughs> and sometimes I think, um, especially all those items I have via eBay, I said, okay, this item is there to tell this story. Early, must have been February of 1988, I got now a original a little, it's like a mini banner of the Olympic Games in Calgary, 1988. And that is so cool to see the mascots on there waving the Canadian flag because number one, there was no way of knowing early winter 1988 that one day I will be in Canada, that I will be able to visit Calgary and uh, to one day have this little banner there reminding me of it. Because years later, when I was actually in Calgary, went to the Olympic Village, I almost had to laugh out loud there in the Olympic Village. Some people probably looked strange at me because the way it was shown on TV back then was as if Calgary is in the middle of the Rockies, just <laughs> mountains around it, snow everywhere. I have good friends in Calgary, Herman, somebody who invited me again and again. And I thought, I told him later, man, this is so flat here. When we went onto the highest hill in Calgary, I said, 
I almost have to check out where far, far away the mountains are. I said, this camera work, 1988 on TV, how Calgary looks like. That was very well creative to say the least. And when I saw then the where they did the big jumps, I had to remember Eddie the Eagle from 1988. I don't know if it tells you anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Famous ski jumper back then who was so behind everybody else, but made the tabloids, made the headlines and told me to. Um, so uh, early 1988, still free, but in East Germany behind the uh, Berlin Wall, I was watching the Olympic Games in Calgary, Canada. Then in the summer, I was already in a pretrial prison um, and one cellmate that I was in one cell was always just two people together, if at all. He got a TV in the evening for two hours and we saw the Olympic Games in Seoul in Korea. I got a little banner from there too. So, and then while the Summer Olympic Games 1988 in Korea were still going, this was the day when I was told by one of the uh, Stasi interrogation officers that they extend the paragraphs they're accusing me of, that I'm now already a full-blown traitor of the communist country, exposing East Germany to the West, uh, basically helping the Third World War to start and then end. So I came back into the cell and told him, man, I'm getting a new sentencing and uh, extending what they're accusing me of because we had both sat in this cell. Those are the Olympic Games in, in Seoul, in Korea. February was Calgary. The next Olympic Games, we will be in the free world and we go there. And that day when I was told that my sentence will probably be extremely higher, he just looked at me. And there are moments in life where you just got to have some dry humor. He said, um, what Olympic Games are we going to meet again in how many years? <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, now, now today you can laugh about it, but at this time I was just looking at him, said, yeah, you too, you too are taking a dig at me, said, I have no idea, but it was still kind of in this, in a strange twisted way uplifting, but when I have those, I have them next to me, those two tiny little banners there from Calgary from 1988 and from Seoul, Korea, then I think, wow, that there's so many little stories hidden there. The good part is what comes out of it. I just said earlier to every story, there's a positive twist. In 2010, I could see the people in Vancouver running through the streets with one of the bearers of the uh, Olympic fire. I could hold the Oh my gosh, now I have to ask you, what is it called again? What is it called again? They're running through the street with, with the fire, the not cauldron. The torch? Uh, the torch. Oh my gosh. You see, sometimes, <laughs> especially last couple of years, sometimes constantly switching between German and English. The torch, mm -hmm. of course, the torch. So if my children listen, please do not laugh about me. Please do not laugh at me. <laughs> Uh, so I got my picture with Olympic torch in front of the Olympic flag in Vancouver. That's cool. So there, there was my closure. That's that's a that's a good kind of way to just wrap that whole story up. I like that kind of like a full circle. And you were mentioning about Calgary and the misconception of that. You thought there was mountains, but it ended up being all flat. 
which was a perfect way to just bring in this question. What are some misconceptions about people who do storytelling? Yeah, yeah, misconception <laughs> or sometimes I've talked to people. Uh, luckily, so far, most people have told me that they really like my question and my stories and that they sometimes don't even have to ask uh, questions, uh, that there can also be some dry stories. And what I absolutely personally don't like is made up stories just for the sake of it. So I always make sure if somebody says, uh, you have really experienced that. So there's a whole bunch we would have to talk for hours now in order to get to it. For myself, for my own verification, every story that I, for example, was telling in the Cold War History podcast with Ian Sanders, every story I'm telling, I always make sure for myself who else was there at the time. And there's always somebody. And sometimes even my own mother, uh, the time 1991, when the former East German Secret Service uh, poisoned me. And just recently I said, so do you remember that time? And she, well, how can I forget this as a mother, seeing you there standing in your apartment, blood running down your body, the doctor saying you have been poisoned and so on. So with each story, I make sure who was there. Is there somebody I can still ask? Or do I have the document, just like the letter I was talking in the beginning about from the spy trader, that it can be seen here. Look at this letter. There's my name on it. So um, that um, it's on one side a pleasure to illustrate a story, but on the other hand, when you have many stories and such a crazy life, there are moments you doubt yourself. And then you want to know uh, this really did happen. So even when looking at my Secret Service files, talking to somebody who is helping former political prisoners to uh, yeah, basically not lose it at any point in time. And there I said too, it sometimes happens to me that I'm questioning my own memories. Luckily, I started to write them down um, in the 90s already, but then when my son Tyrone was born in 2000, uh, because I wanted my two kids, my son Tyrone, my daughter Samantha, I wanted to tell them, leave them the stories so that I collected the items that explain, illustrate the story. So I always want to make sure it is real, that my own memories are not betraying me that I'm not adding something just for a effect. It would be easy, but I don't like this. And uh, that's why I've actually started that long ago to really write them down so that I sometimes can go back to something written 20 years ago and see, oh yeah, it's still the same. I just tell it now with a little bit more excitement. I have a couple of twists that are real, but can put a different spotlight on it so that the story is true, is for me important, that it conveys a message, that it has a positive twist. 
and that in some way, shape or form, just like the school class there in South Wales, that it helps uh, them, the kids, people to understand history, to deal better with it, and hopefully one day help them make decisions, review decisions, guide something the right way. Well, the, you have gone through the same as a parent. The first days you stand and say, okay, now what? What do I do? Where's the handbook that tells me um, how I uh, help a kid grow up and how to teach it and what did our parents do? What should I do better? What can I take from back then? So those are some of the points. No, no, those are wonderful points as well. And it, once again, it goes back to it's part of your life experience and there's going to be more points to add on to that list down the line, right? Oh, absolutely. Don't <laughs> <laughs> worry, it's going to be a long list. You're going to have a lot of points. So within all these points that you have accumulated, what would you say is, it's once again, pretty hard to answer, but what would you say is the one thing, the biggest thing that storytelling has taught you in life? Like the biggest thing. The biggest thing is to speak out, to also, that's probably the most difficult. Uh, I even want to say the most horrible, horrible, the most difficult part to face yourself because you look back upon yourself. How did I act back then? What would I do today with what I know now? Why not just, as you said earlier, what if it would have gone a different way or asking yourself if I would have made this decision, but more so important, why did I say that back then, act that way? Why did I respond this way? We learn by telling stories to others by, in my case, transporting history, also entertaining a little bit. But we learn a busload about ourselves because you have to face yourself in those stories. And it's not always pleasant. Sometimes you also think, okay, I have to for myself learn something out of it that I have to pass on in a part of the story to listeners, to my own children, to other kids. Um, that helps them make better decisions than I possibly did. And facing yourself, that's probably the most horrifying thing one can do. It's a challenge we all face, right? Yeah, we might not always like what we see 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And uh, we can always just hope that eventually we steer into the right direction eventually we could turn the whole thing around and improved ourselves uh, just like the other day it might also seem like a hollow phrase but this quote that most people have read or seen from michelangelo that um, i'm not done learning yet with 87 i think of age that we also see now it really never stops because i do remember a few 
but old people said, I am old, I can do what I want, I can say what I want. And now that it goes into the direction of being somewhat older, I think, no, he can't just because of age. You're not any wiser. You cannot say what you want and uh, behave as you want. No, we still should continue to work on being decent human beings and especially storytelling. You have a great responsibility what it leaves your listener with in the end, the takeaway that there's not something, I don't know, self-serving or uh, something you did to make yourself shine brighter or look better, that you in the stories also have to put in the things that were went as good. You got to show all the lights, just show who you are as a person. It's kind of like the opposite of what Instagram is nowadays, where oh, you just good. show your yes. good side. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh, yeah. If we would put the light just the right way, flex a little bit, have the newest shirt tech, the company, just to get another... Um, uh, sponsors can be great, can be good. Uh, sometimes I wish for that. And uh, I read it somewhere recently. I think you wrote it too. It's, uh, oh, you, you said it in this one TikTok. It's not a bad thing to make money with podcasts, but not necessarily the most important. If it happens, great. If not, still continue. And this is basically with what I'm doing too. There are times when I look at, oh, I sold one book last month. Wow. $1.24. Yay. <laughs> but it's the journey that counts, right? It's all about the journey and how you got there. And yeah, life, life will throw everybody curveballs. It's just depending on how you catch it and if you can throw it back. That's a weird analogy I just made. Yes, this, this, that's, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> and yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure there's a lot of people who are listening to this right now. It's like, okay, well, I would like to become a better storyteller. So for those people, do you have any word of advice on what are some key elements to be a good storyteller? Uh, first of all, is I think important to think, what do I want to achieve? What am I telling with my stories? And what's the reason that I'm telling them? What is the message I'm transporting through my stories? So figure out what is it you want to convey? What is the message that comes out of it? Because what we want and what somebody else hears, those, as we know, can be two very different things. And then uh, find excitement in working your craft. Uh, tell many stories. Tell them often listen to feedback. That's also something we all have difficulties with when somebody says, you know what, I listened to your story and maybe you should file on this aspect or that. Have you thought about telling your story this way where you think, man, I thought my story was really great. Why are you now trying to criticize me to know not every advice is criticism and to listen to that and um, following it, just like this Michelangelo quote, never stop learning uh, to improve and uh, be able to do this, even if this seems like another hollow phrase, the elevator pitch, being able to say who you are, 
what you're teaching, what you're telling, what your story is about, and then having also follow-ups available, work on your craft, like anything else, like a musician. I remember once uh, being in a house with a bass player on this, this whole time. He was sitting there with his guitar and while talking, uh-huh, yeah, oh, oh, that's really great. And the fingers were going, going, going. And the drummer was sitting there bum, 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 with his fingers doing the rhythm. So in the same way as a musician is constantly working the craft of somebody who's painting, paint the hell out of it. Failures, okay, uh, in the same way, we have to uh, continue working on how we do our storytelling and look what you have done with so many episodes under your belt. There are <laughs> hobbies where some people say, yeah, this is now an absolutely not interesting for me. Yeah, that's why you have so many episodes. You've talked to so many people. I found so much great contents in there that, uh, that I know, yeah, you could do what you personally prefer but what you're doing alex with your time for your hobby podcast is really bringing out a spectrum for so many people that especially so sometimes a little niche that uh, people hey i never knew somebody's doing a podcast about that how great is that so that that we're not just thinking about the, the stuff that we like but more importantly more importantly what others like and uh, how they enjoy it. Well, you know what? I think that's my role in this world. I am a storyteller by inviting people to share their stories. That's that's the way I'm cheating by becoming a storyteller, <laughs> by letting other people tell their stories. It's my, my master hack. <laughs> well, that is just as important. Um, I have not met one yet, but I've talked to people who said, yeah, I was invited at a podcast and Oh my God, then no questions really came. That was so dry. I just started telling and hope that he had pressed record. Um, <laughs> this, what you do uh, to basically encourage the other person to speak freely, to, if necessary, pull something out of their nose to get them going in a different direction. That is. Uh, important storytelling too. Uh, that's why in the past, in really, or in the distant history, there were contests for storytellers when they met from different villages somewhere in the castle who had the best stories. When was the king laughing? And one was his, when was his eye squinted? And he said to the guy in the background, go sharpen your sword. I don't like the stories of that guy. And the key thing with storytelling as well is you just have to find a method that works for you. There's not and especially like you were saying the king, that situation, in that situation, you only could tailor your story to the king, only the king you have to please. But yes. in reality, like Ralph does, he modifies the way he presents his story because he will, like I'm sure you present your story differently from a class of kindergartens to, let's say, a retirement home, different Absolutely. ways of delivering the stories. And I feel like you are a master not imitator, but a master improviser in the sense that you are good at adapting in any situation. And I've asked this question at the beginning of the episode because I know people at this point, they're like, okay, I really need to know more about Ralph because he has so much to share. Where can people find you online? One website is, for example, wingchunkungfu.com, where I have some of my training videos, but the very best 
now that you're asking me again is also on YouTube. I have so many videos out there about Kung Fu, uh, about the Cold War history stories, East Germany, Berlin Wall, trailers from the movie, action scenes for somebody who wants to be uh, entertained. So at youtube.com slash uh, Kung Fu Coach. This what would probably be a prime source to go to because there's everything in there. That's perfect. I'll put that once again down below so it'll be very easy for people to find and follow your story, follow your journey. And maybe somebody is like, hey, I actually know you. And then maybe you'll be able to connect and then I'll add on to your story. And if you've listened to a few of my episodes, then you might know what my last question is. And either you might have a very difficult question, but here it is. Do you have any questions for me about storytelling? Um, yes, <laughs> actually, uh, absolutely. The different fields that you're in, how do you personally stay excited, even if you once in a while possibly meet a topic that is absolutely not interesting for you um how do you motivate yourself to keep it going to ask relevant questions even if the topic is absolutely not yours and will never be but by the episodes i've listened in already that you have done i've seen that you always do this job you always so jolly and excited <laughs> as if the person you're talking to is the most important guest <laughs> in the world. And so how do you motivate yourself? Well, within that moment in time, they are, of course, the most important person because they are the person I'm focusing on. And that's a really good question, I guess. Even if it's a hobby that I would not do myself or I don't see myself ever doing or not interested in, I'm more interested in the individual and their reasoning behind of why they pick up that hobby and how that helps them in their lives. So I've always been a person that loves connecting with people who are trying to find what makes people tick, what makes them happy, what makes them go in life. And for me, the motivation of them lighting up when they get excited to share something, it just gets me pumped. I feed off of other people's passions. And that sounds weird. I sound like some sort of like like a cloth or a sponge. I just suck it all in. And it's just the way that they just, sometimes they start off very timid. It's just shy. <clears throat> don't, don't want to share a lot. But as the questions go along, I make the questions. And also this is the thing I write, like uh, Ralph saw the questions I write down beforehand, but during the story or during the interview, I get super curious. So I try to learn very little about my guests beforehand so whenever we do have the interview it's my curiosity like that question about the kids asking questions and tough questions i didn't write that down that was because of how ralph was talking about tailored questions or not tailored questions tailored stories for his audience and i'm like oh you know what this would be a great question because in a way i'm also i'm not thinking oh what will my listeners think i'm thinking i'm curious about this i want to know about this i don't <laughs> i'm not thinking of like oh what would, what would my guests or not my guests but what would my listeners want to know. I'm thinking, what do I want to know? I want to know more about Ralph. I am that kind of curious person. So hopefully I answered that question because I also tend to ramble along, along, a lot, <laughs> along. Yes. Yeah, see, and stumble and mumble. But yes, I am the type of person that gets very curious about people and who they are and what makes them happy in life. So that's what makes me keep going. 
Yeah, that was fantastic. That's uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of as if I'm the host. I just wanted to say <laughs> that's exactly the answer I was looking for. <laughs> yes, I passed the test. <laughs> yes, the the moment when you said that you get ignited by other people's passion. This should be your tagline. This is absolutely it because you can hear in somebody's voice, especially when time passes, but you're every time upbeat and you have a genuine interest. And this is so important because even somebody who's telling their stories, they too want to be taken serious just as the listeners want to have interesting stories. And since you were... One more time, um, talking about uh, kids asking questions about stories uh, in, in Vancouver, just maybe as a last story, I did a Q&A in front of a boys club. Somebody, a sponsor of the Vancouver Canucks, who is also doing uh, boys clubs where young boys, so I think 12 to 16, learn what it uh, means one day to be a man and how to be courteous, how to be nice, but also to be strong and also to learn about emotions. They do anything, how to uh, dress and everything for different occasions. So I was there talking about tough times in life and it was just so at the same time interesting at the same time funny as one of the visuals i had from the east german secret service prison a choke chain with me so as a prisoner when you were because you had to be even more you were already through what is called white torture you were already taken apart but you had to be intimidated to the last cell of your soul so to say so you had humongous handcuffs on and then a guard with a kalashnikov had also still a choke chain around your wrist so that he could just twisted a tiny little bit and you had this pain shooting through your arms a lot of people got nerve damage from it so i had this he said this is just to show and then i saw those 30 40 boys all looked at this chain cool can we come down he said yeah sure i said just want to tell a story no we want to look at it can we try it on and then I showed them how it's done and the host also said, guys, be uh, cautious, but they all had to try it out. This tiny little twist just so that they say, oh, wow, this really hurts. Cool. <laughs> I said, yeah. So as it is cool, they needed this visual, this physical sensation to connect to the stories. After that, um, the man who was doing the boys club, he said, I've done many talks, invited many guests, he said, but I've never ever seen them concentrated for an hour and actually not really ending uh, asking questions. He said, somehow you got their attention. He said, yeah, that wasn't even intended. I just wanted to dangle this choke chain there <laughs> and show it as a visual. But after they had personally tested, they were suddenly open. So it means sometimes you tell stories, but there might be this little thing, if it's a visual, if it's 
they pause if it's a mentioning of something sometimes we don't even know as i was surprised about how that worked out that can sometimes transport our stories in a way that we never thought possible so that was a strange yet exciting experience to and then hearing from somebody later having kids myself knowing that how do you keep a teenager occupied for an hour and so uh, let alone 30, 40 of young boys. So that was quite exciting and made me think afterwards what an impact our stories can have. And it probably most likely after the day was done, they came back home, they probably reflected on it as well and made them question yes. some other things, which is the beautiful thing. We are cre a curious creatures that always want to learn whether we like it or not. We are curious. That's how we are where we are today. We gone to where we are because of our curiosity. And you've done yes. a great favor for these kids by sharing this. And some of them might be even more visual. So you showing the actual item made it an even better story than just from other methods. So like, once again, people learn in different ways. So you being able to adapt by using, whether it's an audio story, a written story, or a physical story. When I say physical, I don't mean like you're fighting the kids in a way, but I'm saying like <laughs> items. <laughs> the way that you can adapt has made storytelling an experience that everybody can enjoy. And it, I find that wonderful. So there you have it. A wonderful body with a hobby. Thank you, Ralph, for coming on and sharing your deep story. I feel like we could have gone on for much longer because I feel like you just scratched the top of the story. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, um, I'm slightly elevated in my chair here, ready to continue, ready to run, <laughs> to keep going. So um, um, I was waiting. I was always waiting. Hey, oh, wait a minute. Let's see when Alex begins to say, so that was a lovely time that we had. <laughs> <laughs> that I know. Okay, my time's up. That was it. <laughs> but, so I don't try to rush any anybody's time. Oh, like, no. I try to let them do what they need to do. And like, I feel like you have captivated so many people with this story right now. I say this story, I mean these stories. So there's multiple stories that you said and then they were very, very lovely. And so, yeah, if you guys actually want to learn more about Ralph, I'll put all the links down below. So it'll be very easy to find. If you'd like to be on my podcast or have any questions at all, you can send me an email at timeforyourhobby at gmail.com. And of course, if you like the podcast and want to show some support, you can leave a review or you can even, you know, join my Patreon. I have some tiers in there that are pretty interesting. And also I have some merchandise being sold on Redbubble. But once again, these are all optional. You don't have to do it, but it's there if you need to. Need to? Sorry. Want to. You, you don't need to. <laughs> but what you need to do is go show Ralph some love. So Ralph, thank you once again for taking the time out of your day or evening, actually, for coming to come talk to me. Thank you so much, Alex. It was an absolute pleasure. And sometimes you really feel in the beginning or somewhere in between that you really enjoy talking to someone. And it was an immense pleasure for me. I really had fun. And I know normally we would say, okay, where do we meet up for lunch now, your <laughs> yeah. time? Let's go have some lunch, have a coffee, and then let's continue. So I could go on for hours, but thank <laughs> you for staying with it for such a long time. I too enjoyed it very much talking to you. Thank you for your questions. And I can only say for everybody, listen to Time for Your Hobby podcast with Alex. You cannot miss that. <laughs> go into the archives. Uh, you will find so many hobbies uh, you might be interested in. 
because it's not always that a podcast is truly interesting. Yours, Alex, is absolutely so. Everybody, time for your hobby with Alex. Go check it out. Listen to all the episodes. There's so many and enjoy it. Have fun. And Alex, once again, thank you so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, sending my best wishes from the Baltic Sea all the way to Ottawa and um, enjoy your weekend. And thank you so much. Nah, man, you're making me blush. <laughs> <laughs> that was also my intent. In yes, between, exactly. <laughs> but I absolutely mean it. Because no, I've really been in your archives and that's a treasure box waiting for the listeners. So do not miss it in case I have not yet said it with a serious voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really cannot thank you enough for this. And if we ever do meet up, maybe I'll share some of my stories of like how I was a tour guide at Vimy Ridge. Ooh, Ooh. interesting story. <laughs> I have some other interesting stories as well, but I feel like we have to save those for when we meet up so we can just hang out the whole day, whole week, whole month sharing our stories. I would absolutely <laughs> love to. Perfect. So until the next episode, Make some time for your hobby. Take care.